Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. So today we're going to be John chapter 14. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we're going to finish out John 14 together today. We've had probably four or five sermons in this uh, one chapter. By the time... It's going to be December by the time we're done with the book of John. I hope you guys are okay with that. I'm okay with that. <laughs> In 2001, the first movie of The Lord of the Rings premiered in theaters. That was The Fellowship of the Ring. Very fond of that movie. I was 11 years old whenever that came out. So if you want to date yourself, okay, there's the groans. I was about Abram's age. In fact, I was younger than Abram whenever that movie came out. So there you go. There's your reminder for today. Um, anyways, if you know the story, you know that the story centers on a hobbit named Frodo who was tasked with taking the all-powerful ring that he inherited from Bilbo, who was actually his cousin, and he was called to destroy the ring by throwing it in the volcanic fires of Mount Doom. Mount Doom. It's a very tall task for such a small hobbit, okay? If you've watched the first movie, there's a turning point um, for you nerds out there. It's called the Council of Elrond, okay? And it's whenever all the leaders of uh, the race of men, the dwarves, the elves, they all get together, and they're trying to figure out what to do with this ring that's going to destroy the world. And they're arguing about the ring, who's going to take it, you know, they got to throw it in the mountain, in the volcano there, who's going to take it, you know, this is a suicide mission, and so they're arguing amongst each other, and that's whenever Frodo pipes up and says that he will take the ring, I'm going to take the ring, the least likely person, the weakest person, Frodo, says, I'm going to do it, I volunteer to take the ring. But how could such a small hobbit, such a small dude, right, probably the same height as Ellie, right, uh, how could he complete so great a task? It is at this point that Aragorn the king, Legolas the elf, and Gimli the dwarf pledge their allegiance to Frodo in the movie, saying, you have my sword, you have my bow, and you have my axe. Frodo was now equipped with a power much greater than his own to complete a task much bigger than himself. Today, in John chapter 14, as we finish this passage together, we're going to see that we are likewise equipped, but not to throw all-powerful rings into volcanoes. We're equipped for something much greater than that. We're equi equipped by Jesus to preach the gospel in unbelieving age to an unbelieving people to be faithful to fight the battle of faith through the equipping of Jesus. Today we're going to see how Jesus equips us through the sending of His Holy Spirit. A Holy Spirit that we're going to see does three specific things. A Holy Spirit that teaches us, a Holy Spirit that reminds us, and then finally a Holy Spirit that brings us peace. And so if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14, we're going to be in verse 25 to verse 31. Okay? This is what it says, starting verse 25. 
These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, and the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that whenever it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. What I like about the Lord of the Rings and any fantasy or epic or those types of stories is how white and black the good and the bad guys are, right? You know who the good guy is. You know who the bad guy is. Real life isn't so easy, but in these fantasies it is, right? Frodo, good guy. Sauron, bad guy. You don't want to hang out with Sauron. You want to hang out with, with Frodo. Think about Star Wars. Darth Vader, bad guy. Luke Skywalker, good guy. And it goes on and on and on. You know these stories. You know who the good guy is. You know who the bad guy is. And what that does, that creates a tension, right? Because you get to know the, the, the good guy, you get to know the bad guy, and then a sense of urgency is developed as you know those are on a collision course at the end of the story, at the end of the movie, as they collide, and we see who wins, and it's hopefully it's the good guy. So we're kind of pushed forward in the story to see what the resolution is between the good guy and the bad guy. In the Bible, we also have this motif. And I would argue, I'm not a literary scholar, but I would argue just the idea of the hero story that we, you know, that's so in sort of ingrained within us that there's a hero that comes to conquer comes from Jesus himself, right? Jesus is the ultimate hero coming to defeat the ultimate enemy. The enemies of sin, death, and Satan. And in our story today, we see that collision course. We see Jesus, the hero, getting ready in just a few moments to defeat the enemy. We have a sense of urgency, and it's built right into the passage. Look at verse 25 with me. What does it say? These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. What's the implication? That Jesus isn't going to be with them very much longer, right? But what's going to happen? Why isn't Jesus going to be here anymore? Why is he about to go? He's setting us up, and I think you guys know the end of the story. He's setting us up for the cross. He's setting us up for the crucifixion. The implication is that something really big is about to happen, so my time with you is short, so you need to listen to what I'm about to say. Verse 30, read this again. It says this, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Again, the urgency. Time is short. I can't say much more. So listen to what I'm saying, and it's here we are introduced to the enemy. 
we're introduced to the, the uh, ruler of this world. Who is the ruler of the world? Well, that's Satan. The ruler of the world is Satan. Now, quick caveat, that is a little r ruler. God is the capital R ruler. God ultimately is the ruler of this world, but Satan is allowed to exercise some level of influence and dominion in this world, but Satan is coming. The things that he has put into process are about to be fulfilled at the crucifixion. If you remember from John 13, Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. They're sharing the Last Supper together. And what does it say that Satan does? I remember reading this passage whenever I was in college. It says, Satan entered the heart of Judas to betray Jesus in John 13. And I remember reading that and just kind of being chilled, like, Man, I hope that doesn't happen to me, right? <laughs> like, that's like scary stuff, right? Satan entered the heart of Judas after Jesus washes Judas' feet and he shares a meal. Satan enters the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Judas leaves. Judas is on the way to get the Jews to then bring them to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, try him, send him to Pilate, and then there Jesus be crucified. All of that is happening while Jesus is talking to his disciples here. And so, yes, it's exactly as he says, the ruler of this world is coming. He's coming right now. Satan is coming, and he thinks he's coming to deal a decisive, deadly blow to the Son of God. We know that the joke is on him. That's not what happens. But we see within this context of Jesus as the hero, a collision course with the enemies of God. But then, something Jesus does something very interesting. What does he do? Well, it is the hero story of Jesus, but then he invites us into the story. He invites you into the story. He invites me into the story to take part in the hero story. Not that we're the hero, but that the hero story is also our own story that we play a part in. How do we know this? Because he equips us for battle. He equips us for battle by sending us his Holy Spirit. And that's what brings us to our first point here in verse 26. The Holy Spirit, the equipping of Jesus, equipping, Jesus equipping his people comes by way of the Holy Spirit. And the first thing the Holy Spirit does for us is the Holy Spirit teaches us. Verse 26 says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He'll teach you all things. Have you guys ever had a good teacher before? You've probably had a lot of bad teachers. Have you ever had a good teacher before? A good teacher makes all the difference in the world in learning a topic or a subject. So I got a degree in music. I got a, went to college for a guitar, a performance degree. And I had a lot of excellent teachers. My guitar professor was amazing. I had really great theory teachers and history teachers. But the best class I ever took had nothing to do with music. It was an art history class. It was freshman year of college. It was a 6 p.m. class. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So it was later, you know, a night class. And it was an amazing class. I took it, you know, if whenever you go to college, there are certain classes you have to take, even though you don't have any interest in taking them, right? 
And I wasn't against art or, I mean, that stuff interests me anyways, but it's not something I probably would have taken on my own. But this was an art history one, uh, art history two class, I believe, talking about the Renaissance and Michelangelo and Raphael and going all the way up to the present day. And this class was amazing. It was my favorite class of all the classes I took in college because the teacher was so good. I learned a lot. If you are friends with me on Facebook, you'll see my sort of Facebook banner there is a picture that I learned about in that class. It's called The Calling of St. Matthew by the Baroque artist named Caravaggio. Caravaggio. And it's an amazing picture of Jesus calling. He's pointing, like Jesus is on the right there. He's pointing at Matthew. Matthew's in the tax booth. And Matthew's like, like me? You, you want me to follow you? And the surprise on Matthew's face just captures the the change that happens whenever, yeah, Jesus is calling you. It's such a powerful picture, and this teacher made it all come alive to me. What would have just been a picture on the wall meant something much more because of this teacher. Jesus said that he is going to send the Holy Spirit to us to teach us. And as good as this art history teacher was, I don't even remember her name, but she was great. The Holy, Te the Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher ever, the teacher par excellence to make his word come alive to us. The teacher is there to impress his words upon us in a way that equips us for the battle of head, the battle of faith, the battle of faithful living in our day and age. The church has codified this teaching of the Holy Spirit as teacher in the doctrine of illumination. Okay, The doctrine of illumination. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that before. The doctrine is just like core teaching, and then the teaching aspect of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of illumination. If something's been illuminated, it's been lit up. Like if you have fireworks, the night sky is illuminated. What the doctrine of illumination teaches us is that apart from the Holy Spirit working inside of us, we cannot accurately understand God's Word as He intends it. So it says, we can read the Bible, we can know the stories of the Bible, we can understand the arguments and the claims of the Bible, but that's all it would be, just facts. Like if you took an exam, if you had to study you know, world religions, right? And you had to take an exam on Christianity. You might be able to make a hundred on the exam, but it takes the Holy Spirit to make these things come alive to you. That it's not merely a word about God, but the word of God. As John Frame puts it, a, a theologian, the author of the text opens the text to us so that we can understand on a deep spiritual level that this is the truth of God and then live it out. It's not merely academic, it's life, right? It's true. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. This is what it says. This is where we get this doctrine of illumination. Starting there in verse 2. I'm sorry, in chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So two spirits, spirit of this world, spirit of this age, the wisdom of this world, and the spirit of God. Why do we receive the Spirit of God? 
that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual, spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Have you ever gotten into a conversation with a friend or a family member about God, the Bible, about faith, about the gospel, and it just doesn't seem to penetrate, right? Conversation just doesn't seem to get there. You just don't seem to be speaking the same language. This great and amazing news that salvation has come, right? Salvation has come. The gospel has come. You bring this to them, and you're met with a, okay, so what? Okay, that's great for you, but, you know, it doesn't really move the needle for me. It's not illuminated within them. And whenever I say that, it doesn't mean this person is dumb. It doesn't mean this person is stupid. It doesn't mean that they don't necessarily don't care. And it doesn't mean you can shake them at their shoulders and say, why don't you understand? You don't get to do that. On the contrary, it reminds us the truth that Jesus, of Jesus that at the core of the gospel, of God's word, God has to come and open up people's eyes to understand it. He has to, he has to open up the text so that we actually believe this to be the truth of God's word. Let me give you an example from Luke chapter 24. This is Jesus doing it, but this is how the Holy Spirit does it to us. Jesus has been resurrected. He hasn't gone back to heaven yet, but he's meeting with his disciples. And it says in Luke 24, verse 44, verse 44, Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There's a supernatural working of God that happens whenever we understand the words of God. Jesus' disciples I mean, they've walked with a guy for three years. They saw him do amazing things, right? And they still needed him to open up their minds to understand what was just what he was saying. And if they needed it, man, we do too. It's hard to explain the experience of God's Word coming alive to you. Okay? It's hard to explain. It's kind of like having a kind of like having a baby you can't like you can describe it and raising kids and all that but it doesn't touch just the feeling you get as a parent right the feeling you get as a parent there's a sen sensation to it there's an experience of it i remember in college whenever i started reading the bible for the first time freshman year i remember just stumbling upon my bible and reading some part of matthew and I was like, okay, this is, this is kind of cool. In college, sophomore year, junior year, reading the book of John. And it's all I did in between classes, getting ready for choir, because I had to do choir. I got a pencil and just kind of scrawling on, on my 
Bible there in the book of John. It was all I did. At home in the kitchen table, reading Mark. In the car, reading Galatians. Have you guys ever read Galatians chapter 3? Which says that the promises to Abraham was the gospel being preached beforehand. And then it went back to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15. And I saw where God said to Abraham, In you all the nations of the world will be blessed. Then it went back to Galatians chapter 3, and I was like, there it is. There's the gospel being preached beforehand. This aha moment, this gospel thread that goes throughout the Bible, that the whole thing points to Jesus, and I didn't see that. But then God showed it to me. What I'm telling you, what I'm telling you is you need the Holy Spirit to teach you these things. It doesn't come from me. Whenever You might be thinking, well, maybe you're just a big Bible nerd, Aaron. I mean, you did open up your message with a Lord of the Rings reference, right? Maybe I am a big Bible nerd, but that's not what's going on here. It's called the doctrine of illumination. That God is piecing together a deep understanding of who He is through His Word. That you're meeting with the living God whenever you get into His Word, okay? And through that, He equips you for a faithful life walking with him. Ephesians chapter 6, 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so what Jesus was doing as I was reading the word, he was opening up the word to me, is he was throwing me a sword and he said, let's do this. And I said, yeah, let's do this. I'm ready to go. That's what's happening whenever you read the Bible, okay? And it might not feel that way. It might not feel that way. You can, you know, whenever me and Hannah read the Bible in the morning, it's not like I'm jumping on the kitchen table ready to jump out the window, right? It might not feel that way. But whether it feels that way or not, if you are in Christ Jesus, that is what is happening. And if you don't feel that way, then I call you to pray to God. He's ready to teach you. Like You come here to listen to me preach and talk and other people, if other people are, are preaching, okay? You need to know that something greater is going on than me, a guy, talking to you. Something much deeper, something much more profound, something much more significant, something much more supernatural. The Holy Spirit is coming and teaching you the Word of God, equipping you for a life of faithful walking with Him so that you can be ready to go, sword in hand. That's the first thing we see here. There's a lot going on in that word teach. The Holy Spirit sent to us in the name of Jesus to teach us. The second thing that we see from John 14 is not only that the Holy Spirit teaches us, but the Holy Spirit reminds us. It says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we're taught by the Holy Spirit, we're reminded by the Holy Spirit. This month of March has been pretty crazy uh, for schedule-wise for my family. So we got a baby on the way. Don't know if you guys knew that. I'm sure you did. Hannah um, has had multiple 
doctor appointments, ultrasound, stress test, doctor consultation, all this stuff. She had a dentist appointment. She uh, helped out at Ellie's pre-K. She's been all over the place. And she has had to remind me time and time again of her schedule because I'm pulling a little bit more baby duty this month than typical. And, you know, I got nothing on Hannah because she, you know, that's what she's baby duty queen. Like, she, that's what she does. She knocks it out. But it's more kind of falling on me. And so I've needed a lot of reminding. Like, she'll say, all right, so are you ready to come home tomorrow at 1? I'm like, what? 1? I got an appointment, right? So we're like, we're like kind of, you know, we make it happen. But, you know, praise to her, so patient with me, reminding me. She even made a big calendar, um, just took a sheet of paper, made a calendar, and, and kind of put everything that she has going on this month so that I'm supposed to, so I'm at where I'm supposed to be at the time I'm supposed to be there, right? Because otherwise, I would just mess it up, okay? Um, I need that reminder. Here we see Jesus describe one function of the Holy Spirit is to remind us of the word that we've been taught. Remind us of the word we've been taught. Again, verse 26. The Holy Spirit will teach you and then bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Because you guys are just like me, we keep forgetting the word that we've been taught. So the Spirit first teaches us the word, we forget, then he comes and reminds us of this word as we go about our lives. The context here is really important to understanding this text. Okay? Go back to the battle imagery. God equips us with his word. we got our sword in hand. He teaches us his word. He throws us the sword. We're ready to go. And then he reminds us of the word. So that whenever things become real, whenever it's go time, whenever the battle comes, we can swing the sword we've been equipped with. He's going to remind his disciples of his word at the moment that they need it. That's what Jesus is saying. I want to look at two texts to illustrate this point. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. This is what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 16. And I just love to talk about a, a, a recruitment um, tactic, a recruitment technique for his disciples, okay? I want you to follow me. This is what's going to happen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Come follow me. You're a sheep. You're going to be sent to the wolf pack. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. So he's just illustrating the metaphor in verse 16. He's, now he's actually you know, giving real-life real examples in 17. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So you're going to have to be a witness before people that can kill you. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. You will be sent as sheep to wolves. You'll have to be my witnesses before people that can kill you. But do not be afraid. I will give you the words. Move forward to Acts chapter 4, verse 5. 
Acts chapter 4, verse 5. This is after Jesus has ascended to heaven and he has sent his Holy Spirit that he promised his disciples to Peter and John. Peter and John have been brought before the rulers of the Jews, the Sadducees, to answer to this message that they've been preaching. This is what it says. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. These are the people that Jesus told them to beware of. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? Now the time of speaking they've come to. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, right? There it is. The promised one that Jesus would send, the Holy Spirit to teach them. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter had healed a lame man, and Jesus said to that man, Neither gold nor silver do I have to give you, but this is what I have to give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up. That's exactly what the man did. They're answering for that. Now he's preaching Jesus before them. Verse 11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13, And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So we see everything that Jesus said would happen in the book of Matthew actually happening here in the book of Acts. And pay special attention to Peter, who it says of him was filled with the Holy Spirit, reminding ourselves of Jesus' words that they would be receiving the Holy Spirit to remind them of his words as they share the gospel. These Sadducees were astonished because Peter and John were regular guys. It's like Ed and Andy out there before the Sadducees to speak a word as a witness to Christ. Equipped with the word of God, speaking with boldness before the rulers and authorities. They had their sword, and now they were swinging for the fences. They were reminded. You'll find as you go through life, the Lord will bring to mind his words for different seasons of life. Whenever I had an inkling of a thought, of a suggestion, of maybe potentially starting a church, whenever that was going on in my brain, I was working for a lobster company, buying lobsters wholesale off of Portland Pier on Commercial Street. Weird job. It's still weird to think that I had that job. I've had that job about nine months. And I spent the majority of my time sitting around waiting for lobsters to show up so I could pull up and get them off the boat and pay the guys that brought them in. And it was in that time that I was studying 2 Corinthians, and there's a verse in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, that became an anchor to this conviction of starting a church. And 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, 
we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So I'm wrestling with this church planning idea. And I'm saying, God, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not the church planner type of guy. Church planner's type of guy, uh, they, they wake up in the morning, they eat their Wheaties, and they're out the door. They're ready to go. Church planning guys, they just you know, shake hands with everybody. They know everybody. They're excited. They do all this stuff. That's not me. God, I can't plan a church. That's not me. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show their surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. So I'm going along. Maybe I'll plan a church. God, I can't do this. We don't have any money. I got like no money. I work for Lazy Boy delivering couches all day, right? Like there's no money in that. We don't have people. We don't have resources. We don't have anything we need to be successful. And no one will show up anyways. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God, I can't do this. I'm just way too afraid. I'm just not the type of guy. I'm not bold. I don't have the boldness of Peter. I don't have the boldness of John. I don't have the boldness of the apostles in Acts who are just, they're just ready to go. I don't have that. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so time and time again, God just kept reminding me of his word, right? He just kept bringing it back. But God, his word comes. But God, his word comes. But God, his word comes and puts to death any excuse that I would have against him. It's like Moses with God in Exodus 3 at Mount Sinai, but God, I can't do this, but God, I can't do that. And God says, your excuses stink. They're not excuses. They're not good excuses. Here is my word. And so because I was equipped with the word, I was taught the word, I was given the word, the Lord then was reminding me over and over and over and over again that if a church was going to be built, it was going to be built because he was doing it, not me. For you, as I bring this to you, don't be so burdened, so deceived, so distracted with the goings-on of this world and the concerns of this world that you miss the gentle prodding of the Holy Spirit to remind you of the truth of God's Word. That's assuming you've been equipped with it. But once you have the sword in hand, the Holy Spirit is going to help you swing it to put to death sin, to put to death doubt, and to put to death despair. And I want you to know that. Really, 100%. Whatever is in your life, that big barrier, that big doubt, that big thing in your life, the Word of God is more powerful than that. You need it first in hand, and He's going to help you swing at it. He's going to remind you. A lot of you guys need to be reminded of the love that you had for Jesus, of the passion that you had for Jesus, of the boldness that you had in Jesus, of the hope that you had in Jesus, of the joy that you've had in Jesus. Living in life can just, it's so relentless on those good things to jade them, to empty them, 
It's so relentless so that we lose those things. What I'm telling you is to pray to the Holy Spirit that he would remind you of these truths rooted in the word of God. So whenever that doubt comes, whenever that burden comes, when, whenever that sin comes, you have the sword in hand to swing, to extinguish the darts of the enemy. And whenever that happens, whenever you do that, whenever you just are anchored in God's word in that way, the result is incredible peace. And it's to that peace we now turn. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Understanding what we've just looked at, it's no wonder Jesus then turns to peace. In this passage, there are two types of peace. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The peace of Christ versus the peace of this world. If current events have taught us anything, we know that worldly peace is fickle and quickly lost. Nation against nation, people against people, ruler against ruler. The status quo of this world is not peace, but war. The deadliest century in the history of humanity, as far as we can tell, is the 20th century. We're not even a quarter way through the 21st century. And look where we are at. And here we have Jesus coming to us to offer us his peace. It's not like the peace of the world that's quickly lost. It's a peace that results in untroubled and unafraid hearts. It's a peace that's rooted in his unchanging love. It's a peace that, come to us, that comes to us in our moment of need, steadying our hearts and our hands, born not of the spirit of this world, but born of the spirit of God. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, he is leaving, but he's leaving with his disciples. Peace. And if he left that for his disciples, he's left that for you as well. It's a peace that first comes to our relationship with God. That though enemies of God because of our sin, and though justly deserving God's judgment, Jesus comes and dies on the cross for us so that he could leave for those who repent and believe and turn to him in faith, a relationship not of judgment with God, but peace with God. That's the gospel, right? That's the good news. That's taking God at his word, and that word being born within us down deep. And if now we have peace with God, then that peace stretches and extends to every area of our lives. Philippians 4, 7 says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's such an incredible thing that what God has left us is his word. And what we have to do is believe it. And such a simple thing, yet such a hard thing to actually take God at his word, to dare to believe that these things are true, to dare to believe that we can have this peace, to dare to believe that we can have all the good things that God has, whatever the situation is around us, to dare to believe that this is ours, that the tomb is empty, that the payment's been made, that salvation and a new name is provided for us. It's all true. So in the end, we are equipped for battle in every way. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to teach his word, to impart to you, to impress upon you the unwavering conviction that this is God's word. This is the truth. I'm ready to go. 
But not only that, he will help us whenever the battle comes. He will remind us. He will bring to remembrance the precious truths of his word that will help us swing the sword as the battle nears. And finally, he will guard us with his peace, a supernatural peace that does away with all trouble and fear. Because of this, we have every reason to be confident, to shout for victory, not a victory of our own, the victory that comes from Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to pray over this word. And I know life is of the, of the type where it's so easy for us to listen to all this and just not be moved by it. And it's not so much, for some of us, it might be a doubting of your word. And for some of us, it's just an indifference towards your word. And I say that as the first offender in both scenarios. Lord, I pray for the doubter, for the indifferent, for the one against. I pray, believing this to be true, believing that it is as you say, that your Holy Spirit comes and convicts, I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to come and spiritually discern what is spiritual. Not as the natural world approaches, but as only you can do. I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to open up the truth of everything we've discussed to us here today. Because we need that. That is, our, our, that is what we have in the battle of faith. If we don't have that, Lord, we're unarmed. We, don't, we can't go. We can't do this. We can't continue forward. Lord, through your Spirit, give us that conviction and help us to take you at your word. Lord, I know that if we do that, the blessing, the, the, the gifts, Lord, the fruit that comes from that, the peace that surpasses all understanding, that just doesn't make sense given the context, given the surroundings, that will come and guard us. We're in a world, we're in a, we're in a context, Lord, of unbelief, of people that don't know your word, of people that don't know you, Lord, that, that don't taste and see that the Lord is good. And I pray that, that they would and that we, armed with it, would, would point them to the better way. And for those of us that are dabbling in this word and just maybe putting a, a, a foot in our toe in, but not jumping deep into it, Lord, push us in through your spirit and help us to want this as much as you want us to have it. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you have given us this word. We lift up all this in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.